Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm here with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello Barney. <laughs> and we are delighted today to welcome special guest Cheryl Garrett. Hi Cheryl. Hello. So glad you could join us, especially in the week that sees the new edition of your classic book, Adventures in Wonderland, which we'll be talking about later. Tying in with this, we'll be hearing clips from an audio interview with the the veteran DJ Terry Farley. And we will also be talking a little about the streets, Mike Skinner. But first, Cheryl, we want to know everything about your journey from Birmingham to becoming editor of The Face, writing this book, and right up to the present day. In fact, the earliest pieces of yours we have on RBP are from 1981, when you were, I think, still at school in Brom. Is that true? No, I would have been at uni by then. I okay. think, you know, I wrote for Enemy when I was still at school. You I think, did. Oh, you know, when Neil Spencer pieces. first met me, he was quite shocked, you know, because <laughs> they sort of not really twigged that they've got a 16 year old working for them. <laughs> so, what year, was, what year was your first piece in? What year was your first piece published anyway? Was it a Ben the Enemy? No, I was working for, I was writing a lot, you know, as a kid. And I I was involved in Birmingham Rock Against Racism. So they had their own paper. I had my own fanzine and I was writing for Temporary Hoarding. So I was writing an awful lot of stuff, usually under names like Sheza. (laughs) Would you prefer us to call you Sheza throughout this episode? (laughs) You sure? I remember saying to Neil uh, Neil Spencer, I'd like to be called Sheza in Enemy, and he just looked at me and went, no, you wouldn't. And and I'm really grateful for that, man. You owe him a lot. (laughs) So so, so you, you first wrote for the Enemy... In, I'm what, guessing 8081. So this, there's, an, there's a live review of the beat, and there's this lovely piece about musical youth. I think before they were even called musical youth. Yeah, I mean they got signed because of that piece, and they oh. were kind of you know my uncle Tony sort of put musical youth together. He was one of the big reggae promoters in in Birmingham, and he was amazing to me. Like he introduced me to people like Burning Spear. Wow. My first wow. question to Burning Spear, why is reggae so sexist and why are there no women in reggae? Yeah, like I say, <laughs> I was very young. That was, very, yes, that was my Winston first question. Rodney. And he just sat down and went, this will take some time. And he just <laughs> he just sat and introduced me to the A3s, to Judy Mar, you know, wrote me a great big listening list. He didn't go, go away, little girl, you don't know what you're talking about. He sat down very patiently and gave me a whole list of music, That's which, great. you know, again, so grateful. That's amazing. And you moved up to London in eighty. Dates are a blur to me. I I came up to London to come to university, so I think 79, 80, can't remember. Okay, okay. And so you wrote, I remember you, because I mean, it was when I first started writing for Enemy, so I remember your byline. I don't think I met you in that that period. And you would have written for Enemy for, what, two, three years before going to City Limits, something like that? That's right. I wrote for Enemy throughout doing an English degree, basically. And it paid my way. You know, I couldn't have managed in London without that, really. And I used to just, the reason you never met me is I was so chronically shy I would only come in either very early in the morning or very late, and Graham Locke would wait for me to give me my album of the of the week to review, and then I'd slip back out again. And I was terrified of you all. You know, I thought I would go in, and Paul Morley would just turn around, point at me, and go, "She doesn't know what she's doing," you know, and I would be found as a fraud, and you know, exposed by Ian Penman for not using words that were long enough. So what we realised, of course, is everyone was terrified, but no one was honest about it. I think, I think that's the thing you realise in retrospect and I was very lucky that Julie Birchall took me under her wing very early on and gave me a lot of support and just kept going you know you got her back in there you know ask for some more and she was just so great oh that's really good to hear that's fantastic so you went to City Limits and then I mean we'll fast forward a little bit I mean I'm sure City Limits was a, I mean you are you know famous for having been I mean famous for many things but you were the editor of The Face for six years? Yeah, ish? six, seven years, yeah. And I was there a couple of years before that doing kind of music clubs and production. 
So, yeah, I was there quite a long while. And I do want to City Limits was the best training ground because I was doing the music and clubs and it was before word processors. So we typed that stuff up every single week. So I knew where every nightclub in London was because I typed it week in, week out and I could walk into any club or venue in London. And I think that was really important. What I took to the face was just this encyclopedic knowledge of what was going on in London plus knowing what was going on in Birmingham and Manchester because I went home a lot and I got a lot of friends in Manchester. So I think that's what what I bought there, really. There wasn't much I didn't know about what was going on in music and clubs in London. No, and that's very clear from Adventures in Wonderland, which which you you've revised and I think sort of updated to some extent. It's coming out this very week. We're really honoured to have you on the podcast. Just before we all got together now, I just reached the paragraph where Tony Wilson has voluntarily closed the hacienda. So basically, I got this on what three days ago, and I've got that far into the book. It's fantastic. I'm so enjoying it. It is so great. It's right. It's great. I'm also really enjoying it. And you've, you've, it's now got um, a different subtitle from when you first published it, which was 1999, when it was a decade of club culture. It's now subtitled Acid House Rave and the UK Club Explosion. And I mean, it's, it's, I don't know whether the word definitive is appropriate, but what's so great about it is it's written by someone who was right on the inside of many of these scenes. I mean, you really, really experienced it. It wasn't, it's not being written historically at one remove. You were a participant. No, again, you know, I'd I'd like to say it was kind of calculated, but it was total luck that I happened to be the person the face sent to do the first Chicago house story, you know, and total luck that Frankie Knuckles was one of the interviews. We really got on. So he said, do you want to go out? And took me out to all the clubs that nobody else has been to, you know, that closed down in the year after that. Ron Hardy, I think, who was one of the great house DJs, and I stood in his DJ booth with Frankie, I think it was dead a year later. So yeah. it was a real experience. And, and also being a Laker baby, you know, the 99 flights to New York were available when, when I was in my early 20s. So Manhattan clubs were a bit of a playground. You know, it was yeah. possible to go for a weekend. Yeah. You know, that was that was my review money from NME for sort of two months would buy me a weekend <laughs> clubbing in, in New York. So I'd been to all of those clubs. I'd been to the Paradise Garage. I'd been to, to you know, the early Chicago clubs, and I knew all those people. But by sheer chance. Yeah. I really envy you going to... Paradise Garage. I mean, I, I, you know, in retrospect, it's something I'd love to have done. I mean, yeah. Larry Levan is such a fantastic DJ. Yeah, it, it was like watching a conductor conduct the orchestra. You know, yeah. he could literally put something on and get one side of the room dancing and the other side just sort of sneering, and then he'd move <laughs> it. So it, it switched over. He knew exactly yeah. where everyone was in the room and what they wanted. It was an extraordinary thing to behold. It should have been you. So the first piece that we're going to feature is, is in fact, that, that piece from The Face, September 86, is before you were the editor. It's called Sample and Hold, The House Sound of Chicago. And it, it really is, it's, it's so wonderfully like fly on the wall and the fact that Ron Hardy, you know, pops up in the piece, he's actually there. It's such an important piece because it played its part in, you know, seeding really the club culture that we all now know about that i mean so so from there to the sort of the superstar djs of the 90s there is there is a real thread there's a real continuum isn't there and your mm. book is essentially i mean it, it goes all over the place which i really like so the different chapters cover different scenes and different people and and styles of music but essentially it is about the phenomenon of the dj and and the clubs the extraordinary scenesterish, snobbery and wonderful liberation of it all. I mean, looking back, I mean, when you went to Chicago that time, could you have foreseen 
where all this was ultimately going to go. No, no. You know, I'd love to say yes, but no. I mean, the piece actually records, they didn't know. They were completely blagging it. They were signing anything that moved in Chicago at the time. They knew they'd got something, but they had no idea what it was. And people would, you know, they'd sign their own lawyer to make a record and he was rapping. They got all these (laughs) rappers trying to make up a new type of rap they were calling roping. And, you know, at one point the PR just went, oh, we signed all these people. I don't know their names but here's some photos of them you know they had no idea it was just blundering about and I think that's why I'm saying there was an element of luck that I kind of lucked into connecting with Frankie and he was like I'll show you what's really going on and then took me into the studio where Marshall Jefferson was recording and took me to the clubs where the house scene was really going on and I think that was just sheer luck to have kind of just connected with him at the right time. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, our, our friend Simon Wisser, who's kind of out there very much around the same time, he's there in July of 86, and he was screwed by the NME. They wouldn't let him cover it. Uh, he did manage to sell a piece to ID around it. Yeah, which came and out he was the only other person who went to the music Abs- box, I believe. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You know, and I think we were all reading this stuff thinking, what are they talking about? You know, <laughs> uh, It's interesting because I shared management with Mike Pickering, and he'd be in the corner of the office sort of smoking joints and raving about this stuff. And then... He released Carino, T-Coy, came out on Deconstruction. Mm. I, I didn't get it. I was, I'm, I'm ashamed to say it. I just didn't, I didn't get it. Didn't get House Music when it first emerged. It happened right under my nose. And I, I missed but it. even T-Coy, when it first came out, we were calling it something like, I can't remember now, it was considered more of a jazz record sure. than, a, than a house record. Yeah, yeah. And it took a while to take root, especially in London. In London, you know, Manchester, it took root really quickly because he had the same rhythm as Northern Soul, I think. Absolutely. But in London, it was just another music in the mix along yeah, with hip-hop, it, it, funk, go-go, in, in, you know. In the audio interview we're going to be talking about in a minute, Terry Farr is very funny about precisely that, about how London didn't get it. Mm. It, it just took a surprising amount of time. He says it's partly because the established scene was so strong in London, which is about rare groove primarily at that point. Exactly that. And exactly so the resistance was, was really strong to it. How interesting. And also MDMA was the kind of VIP room drug there right. you know it's like it, it it took a while to catch on as a club drug i'd seen it as a drug that people took in back rooms and stroked each other in the cushions and it was like <laughs> not for me mate i'm going back out to dance with my mates you know so i didn't i didn't think it was an attractive thing to try at all and i think that was the key thing when mdma came into the mix suddenly we all got it yeah 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 cheryl talk briefly if you would about just the faces role in covering all these scenes. I mean, the second piece, for example, is is not about house. It's this account of going to the third Blackpool soul, funk and jazz weekender in April 1989. You were writing about things like that, that obviously grew out of the whole mm. Northern soul scene. So, so I mean, the face was, was very like, attentive to all this stuff, wasn't it? Well... I would say it was was more the opposite. This was my life, and occasionally I was allowed to put it into the magazine. You know, it's like I, I went out six nights a week, every week. You know, I got into the habit from City Limits, and that's what I did. And we travelled all around the country to go to all-dayers and all-nighters and and to Soul Weekenders and stuff. And occasionally I'd walk into the face and say, oh, I think we should really cover this. And everyone would go, yeah. (laughs) And I think the key thing was, you know, at one point Nick Logan said he was considering closing the face at the end of the 80s, he felt, you know, it would be a fantastic statement to just finish the magazine, either on its 100th issue or at the end of the 80s. And I really strongly felt there was this big new youth culture coming through and we should be covering it. Mm. And, you know, one day we sort of had this chat and we are having the same discussion we'd had about this. And he just said, well, who are these people? And I said, well, you know, there were 20,000 of them dancing in a field I went to last night. And he went, fine do a magazine for them then. Let's let's see how that works. And, of course, the circulation of the magazine shot up. Mm-hmm. And after that, I felt we got permission. And by then, a lot of the design team were younger. Pat was from Manchester. He was already bringing things like the Happy Mondays into the office and saying we should be covering this. And it felt like we were finally covering what we were doing, you know, instead of trying hard to be the cool kids. And you write in the book about the phenomenon of 
what we could call the indie dance crossover when dance starts to kind of you know, infiltrate indie, northern indie music and, and, and the whole Magister phenomenon unfolds from there. I mean, that is an extraordinary moment, isn't it? And, it? and it really made me think about how, like, the Mondays and the Roses were sort of, to some degree, in opposition to, like, the Smiths, you know, and the whole Morrissey's whole kind of horrible hang the DJ thing. Exactly. Mm. So it's fascinating reading about about that era. The third piece is looking back at, you know, the second summer of love for the face, but in 1997, so it's almost a, a decade later. And that's an interesting piece where you you essentially argue that, because we haven't even mentioned Ibiza or anything like that, but you argue that it wasn't as revolutionary as some claim. And your book, in a sense, is about the bigger picture of the phenomenon of clubbing itself, isn't it? What, what prompted the, you know, when did you first start thinking about writing the book? I think when I stopped going clubbing, which okay. was, you know, after my son was born, I had the delusion that most people have when they have their first child that, you know, three months after he was born, I'd somehow park him <laughs> at a cupboard and get back to normal life. You'd be flying to New York. Yeah. 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 You know, so, and, and I very clearly remember the first time we did go to a club. It was a chuff chuff party, my friends in Birmingham, and we left our son with, with my mum and dad who adored him. And we went to this all nighter. And by 11 o'clock, me and my husband were looking at each other and going, I miss him. Should we go home? (laughs) 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 Um, And and then we realised, actually, we weren't going to be dancing all night anymore and that our lives had changed and that, you know, also, you know, it's about time we let some young people have a bit of space on the dance floor because we had hogged it for quite a long time by then. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I think. It was closure for me. It was like if I'm not, if this isn't going to be what I do five, six nights a week anymore, I'd like to write about what it was like. And also knowing that I'd been in the middle of it. I think it was Pete Tong who first said, Why haven't you written a book about this? Mm-hmm. Was it? Okay. Yeah. So it's Tongy, as Terry Farley calls him. Tongy that we have to thank, really, for Adventures in Wonderland. <laughs> I mean, we have to thank him for his patience for the number of times we <laughs> rang him at home at four in the morning to tell him it had all gone pee, I think, you know, which, <laughs> which was probably really funny the first three times, but we did it rather more than that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, did the structure of the book kind of come naturally or was it something that you had to kind of no, figure really, out how to fit together? Really hard because club culture isn't linear you know and people will say I invented this and someone else will say I invented this and they're both right you know Mm -hmm. because things developing so interweaving you know music that started in Chicago Detroit and New York and until I started writing it I had no idea that Larry Levan and Frankie Knuckles had been childhood friends or that all the boys in Detroit were going to the clubs in Chicago and New York I didn't know how interlinked they were and then you're trying to sort of weave in the influence that Ibiza had on that and then the whole British history that started, you know, perhaps with all-nighters and the northern soul scene. So you were interweaving all these different strands. You know, the reggae and soul sound systems in London were really important to warehouse parties. Sure. And mm. so you've got all these disparate strands, and it was actually – it was much easier from 88 to 90 because it became a much more linear story. Yeah. Um, but even then, you've got things like the Blackburn Rays, which kind of popped up completely independent of the Southern Rays. Mm-hmm. So it was hard, and I still think you read it, and it's like it's packed full of names and facts, and I hope I've interwoven the stories. I, I found it really remarkably straightforward read, given the fact that it's exactly what you've just described. I mean, I really like the way you... First of all, sort of like trace some of the early roots, I mean, Levan, but also going back to David Mancuso and the Loft Parties and so on and so forth. Mm. Uh, and, and that establishes sort of you know, disco and th- those, those sorts of roots. But then it, it, it's, it, it is very clear. I love the way you sort of sidestep into Ibiza, how the, these English kids escaping from Thatcher's Britain, living on mm. next to nothing, wash up in Ibiza and discover this entirely different way of doing things and, and the drug which went with it. And that's what it says. No, that's, they come back to England, what, November 87, and Shoom opens just like a couple of months later or a month later, and the whole thing sort of explodes after. 
And uh, no, I, I think I think you you really handled that uh, tricky tricky material really well. And it was so weird from my point of view because some of those people were my friends. You yeah, know, yeah. Seeing them come back and go, what on earth has happened to you? <laughs> you know, these people who left with quite nice haircuts suddenly wearing <laughs> ponytails and you know wearing bright purple tie dye t shirts. And you know, at first we were just aghast. What the hell is happening here? Yeah. And then you know, I went to a couple of the little parties they'd set up, and it was like, oh my god, no, I'm in. I'm definitely in. You know. <laughs> And you don't, obviously, you don't shirk the kind of criminal elements that infiltrate these scenes and the damage that was done. You know, it did turn pretty dark, not least around the house, the end. Oh, my God. I mean, it's really sobering, literally, to to sort of revisit some of the stuff that happened at that time, sure. And I think one of the important things to say about the Hacienda is because it's closed and they've got nothing to lose, they've all been brutally honest. Mm. But yeah. there was lots of other things going on where, you know, promoters asked me to take things out of the book because, you know, it could cause them real problems. Sort of one promoter said to me when I sent him some stuff to read, it was like, yeah, you've been really clever here, but you will get one of us killed. So I cut it all, you know. So with the Hacienda, it had closed. It had closed for good. You could tell that story. And the people inside it were willing to tell that story. But, you know, it happened to an awful lot of other promoters. It wasn't just a Manchester thing and it wasn't just a hack. Of course. But I'm reading about kids who were just innocently selling ease to their pals, ending up in the alleyway behind clubs with guns in their mouths. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty shocking. Exactly that. But, I mean, it's also a very timely publication of the book right now, Cheryl, given, you know, everything we've read in the last couple of weeks about illegal raves and quarantine Mm. raves. You wrote a piece for The Guardian last Saturday, and then following that, three or four days later, was this piece by Siren Kale, if I'm pronouncing the name right, which was quite disturbing. So what is your take on the summer that's coming? I mean, are you are you concerned? Your piece is obviously sympathetic. You understand that young people are, are, are kind of a cabin fever crazy. So how, how are you looking at it all right now? I think this has been building for a couple of years. I've been hearing yeah. about them for a couple of years, and, you know, there's been an unprecedented sort of 20% of our nightclubs closed in 2018, for instance, and they carried on closing. There's so few places for people to play now, for people to gather and play. You know, our city centres have just become luxury flats with all the life sucked yep. out of them. You know, like bars the are getting the more and more expensive. Yes. You know, and and people need to be able to gather and they need spaces to gather. And because they're being pushed out, you know, these parties have been happening in woodlands and fields and there's not even abandoned warehouses like we had because they're now all luxury apartments. So I have huge sympathy for it and, of course, huge fear as well because the virus hasn't gone away. But I can totally, totally see why people want to gather and dance. You know, it's it's part of human nature. It's a tribal thing and it goes back. The earliest cave paintings show pictures of people dancing and some of them are like 40,000 years old, you know. So we're not going to kind of get it out of young people now. And after this period of isolation, you know, I met some friends on the beach a couple of weeks ago and for the first time and we all nearly cried, you know, and it was eight of us sitting two metres apart and we'd been talking via Zoom throughout. But it's people need people, she said, to sound like a horny old song. <laughs> and I do think we have this thing in this country where we're really suspicious of people enjoying themselves. We always think it's slightly suspect and needs to be sat on, you know, and, and we keep changing the law and then we change the law and change the law and it doesn't work and eventually we find a way of accommodating it. And it would be so much better if we were sitting down now and thinking, well, this is obviously going to happen. How can we accommodate it and make it as safe as possible? Yeah. Instead of going like, we will take the full force of the law onto these kids. It's like when you've got WhatsApp to spread to a rabies, how on earth are you ever going to stop it? You know, I mean, they couldn't stop us when there was mobile phones 
telephones and, and phone banks, you know, in, in 89. <laughs> They're not going to stop it I now think... that there's closed social networks. One of the characters I found remarkably sympathetic, you talked to him quite extensively, is that fairly senior policeman in the south of England, whose name might course I'm Kent Tappenden, yeah. That's right. I kind of I ended up really liking him and he was talking about he'd be at the edge of this party and he'd find himself nodding his head to the groove, you know. <laughs> Which I thought was really sweet. <laughs> That's very funny. Well I think one of the things that shocked the police about the eighty nine raves is, you know, they went in expecting to find this kind of unruly mob and what they found were their own kids with big yeah. smiles on their faces, dancing, you know. Yeah. And it was a bit difficult to sort of demonise them once you've yeah. met them. And there were all the early tabloid headlines about biting the heads off pigeons and all this ridiculous <laughs> nonsense. And then you went to them and it was a like, like load of kids with their arms around each other smiling. Yeah, yeah. I remember <laughs> that from the police. You'd be running towards them to try and get into the party and you'd have big grins on their faces and they'd be standing there and then they couldn't help themselves. They'd start smiling because it was funny. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think you're absolutely right to note that it's not that the raves happening now during the lockdown, they're not random in the sense that it's been an ongoing thing over the last few years where as all the clubs have been shut down absolutely. one by one, and the licensing laws have changed to make it increasingly impossible to open anything past, you know, 11 o'clock when the good people want to go to sleep or something. It does make it extremely difficult to, as you say, go out and enjoy yourself. And it's not just, oh, now we're all locked up and, and we're going to do these things. It's, well, we were doing these things before and now that's literally the only outlet that people have to, to go out. And so I think it's not surprising, really. I don't know. No, we need to be finding spaces where people can play, you know, in the middle of our city centres. And we need to make that a priority. We can't turn everything into luxury apartments. I, like I said, you know, as a sort of late developing raver, I spent quite a few of the last few years going to a lot of very sort of underground parties and curious bits of warehouse space and so on and so forth around Hackney. And it all, they all closed one by one mostly because a block of fats had gone up next to it. Exactly. And the people living in the block of flats didn't want to be disturbed. Yet the people were buying those flats to be in that part of town because it was exciting in the first place. This is the paradox. Is the very that's thing that what makes... happens. It sanitises yes. the yes. area they've just spent a million pounds to buy their penthouse in. Yes, absolutely. Dismal. We're going to bring down the walls. Let them fall, 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 fall. We're going to bring down It's probably a, a good moment to hear the first of our Terry Farley. Clips. Yeah, no. Well, just, let me just sort of briefly kind of introduce the, the interview as such. It's Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton interviewing Terry Farley in two thousand five. I mean, Terry Farley is really interesting because he he's a, he's a classic sort of old-fashioned soul boy. He's a couple of years younger than me. He was born in sort of what's really Notting Dale, sort of that end of Notting Hill, rehoused in Slough. He goes right back to you know, his youth, that when he was still in Notting Dale, they could hear blues parties, reggae blues parties, down the road from where they lived and so on and so forth. He grew up with that sort of culture around him. Then the classic figure of people who moved to places like Slough and looking for a scene, looking for something as teenagers that they can get into. And desperately wanting to be back in London. Yeah. And desperately wanting to be back in London. Yeah. And what he, just, what he discovered was Club Crackers, which, Crackers which you, you know very well, Cheryl, yeah. Which was a, a rare thing for a central London club. It's a predominantly black club with a significant gay aspect to it as well. So let's, let's listen to him talking about, about Crackers. So how did you get to hear about Crackers? Was that, was that the, the main club that you went to? or the That's the, fir that's the first club I went to where, uh, you know, it was like, wow, this, this, is, this is just amazing. I think, and, and talking to other people nowadays, you know, people like Cole Cox, Norman Jay, Paul Trouble Anderson, you know, there's loads of people there who are the same age, you know, 16 sort of thing, and it was like, wow, it, it was... I think before then, then, you know, there certainly was places, there were places like Gulliver's and uh, there were soul clubs, but kind of like, it was almost like that's the first club for that generation of people, you know. Before then, it was for older, older people who obviously didn't want young kids in there. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, he's very interesting about crackers. You know, the, the, the really good dancers are the black kids. And as a white kid, you'd stand to one side, you'd stand around the walls of the room, nodding your head, dancing modestly, but you didn't dare go into the middle of the dance floor because it's hyper-competitive, really, really interesting. From there, and he, talk, he talks about then coming out of that, going to the soul all-dayers and weekenders, Cheryl, you were just talking about. In fact, your lives must be quite parallel to some extent. He's very much talking about sort of the late 70s, early 80s, the rare groove scene, and then first hearing House and being sort of, you know, fairly baffled. And uh, should we listen to the next clip, Barney, straight away? Just what we were talking about earlier was about how House didn't really fit in in, in, in London and, and, and how, how House was sort of accepted. This is really interesting stuff. I mean, the first time I remember sort of house as like, right, this is something different, and now we're going to play that. Was it the raid? When, when I mean, I used to warm up there. Pete Tong was Pete Tong and Oki were the two main DJs, and I think it was just at the time Tommy was trying to get that whole thing going with London, and he would play like half an hour of it, and people just didn't know how to react to it. You know, it wasn't a case of we don't like it, but it was just like, you know, we had our records, you know. We had Did they clear the floor? Um, well, people just never danced, you know, and it, and it kind of like, um, suddenly like love can't turn around and things like that will be played and people just didn't know, didn't know how to dance to it, you know, it just didn't go with how people were dancing, they were doing that sort of wop type dance, you know, and the little thing and the little jazz moves, you know, and that was still all part of it, you know, that sort of 70s, uh, 70s moves and, 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 the hip hop, you know, you would you go, you could play, you could play like a Def Jam record next to a, a Go Go record, and you could play, then you could play a James Brown record, then you could play like the Fat Band, and then you could play some new record that was, you know, coming out of America that was funky. But then you played it a house record, and it was kind of like, what am I supposed to do with this? It didn't fit in with everything else. Yeah, I think it only worked when it was like, right, it's only house. That's interesting because Cheryl, you sort of say different, differently in your book. The, the early days that you felt that people could play house amongst sort of other funkier sort of stuff. I think you've got to remember that a lot of the clubs I were going to were were mixed gay clubs. So right. uh, places like Asylum and Pyramid, people like Mark Moore and Colin Favor were definitely putting house into the mix. And I think because it sort of felt like a more grown up, cousined, high energy a gay crowd did know how to dance to it. So, sure. you know, on the dance floor at Heaven or at, at the Jungle at Busby's, definitely House was in the mix and people knew how to dance to it. That's really But it really was one of many strands, you know, it was mixed up with all the, all the music Terry's talking about there. Sure. Well, his experience was slightly more being in a room full of people who used to rare groove and then a house tune going in. Yeah, and, and at the then, Soul Weekenders, there was real hostility to yeah, it. You know, yeah. definitely. I mean, he talks The weekenders he's talking about. Yeah. Anyway, so he talks about, you know, first taking his first E, discovering Shroom. He says he went down probably, like, to the third or fourth promotion of Shroom, being absolutely riveted by it, seeing these guys coming back from Ibiza, Danny Rampling in particular, and we've got a clip we'll play at the end of the podcast, which is so funny, where he talks about Danny Rampling's acid house dance, which was unlike anything he'd sort of seen before. And he, he talks about him and Weatherall starting Boy's Own, and also how cliquey the, the, the scene could be. And then he sort of goes on through the interview, the end of it. It's a long interview, so it's over two hours long. He talks about he and Bill and Frank discuss the emergence of the superstar DJ but also House's longevity, the way that House music survived far longer than, than he, anyone would have expected, and it's still, still around today, you know. I loved it. I really enjoyed this interview. And he's you know, talking to Bill and Frank. You know, you know Bill and Frank, don't you, don't you Cheryl? Yeah. And they know their stuff when it comes to this, so the questions are good. And it, it's great stuff. It's really, really Very worth much. listening to. But what I love is, as I said, he starts off, it's, it's like his journey from being a classic soul boy to being sort of house head and DJ. 
Uh, and that's that's you know fifteen year journey, and it's 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 really interesting. And you could almost do a book of people's conversion experiences, you know, because yes. it is a bit like that, you know, road to Damascus thing. You just <laughs> talked about it. Terry talks about it, you know. And I found that every interview I did for the book, I'd yeah. say, so what was your first time? And everyone could describe exactly what they were wearing when they got to the club <laughs> and what they were wearing when they left, which was very rarely the same thing, you know. A friend of mine was a buyer. At, at Browns, you know, so very, very fashion. Her first time at Shum, she went, I think, in a Jean-Paul Gaultier suit and left in her boyfriend's boxer shorts and a T-shirt, you know. Um. I love that chapter. I love your nervousness about people undressing you in the club. Oh, I just couldn't, I I didn't understand it. You know, the first time I went to Shum, everybody wanted to take my jacket off. It's like, leave me alone, you know. Um, And then two weeks later, there was I sort of in the crowd peeling someone else's jacket off, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic stuff. I mean, it's, it's it's great that we've got this audio interview to talk about and also you to talk too, because the whole thing sort of like ties brilliantly together. It's, 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 it's terrific. I do really like that aspect of the audio interview that what you're just saying, Mark, that it is his kind of journey. He talks about growing up and then getting into all of that. I think it's really interesting that it was very much, not that everyone had the same journey, but that everyone has a kind of, as you're saying, sort of metamorphosis from one from one (laughs) stage to another i think it it does really bring the whole story to life as a not just a historical thing but kind of movement and a mood Uh, i I think think that's sorry so no carry on after you no after you i think that's why houses (laughs) (laughs) people people. (laughs) so that's why it's lasted so long i think because everyone has Mm. those conversion experiences you know you mark later than than us but it it doesn't really matter your first time is still brilliant and and you want to do it again and you know that's something i remember pete tong saying to me you know every year i'm a year older but the audience is exactly the same age because there's always new people for whom this is exciting and new yeah i mean the pleasure i got going to bill and frank's low life parties which were kind of like old-fashioned underground parties and the age range was from like 17 to 65 you know it's extraordinary you got all these generations of people who at different times in life had discovered dance music and one room would be playing like balearic and very disco-y sort of stuff the other room would be playing kind of proper hardcore house music and you could dip from one to the other and, and and you know, and just it is an extraordinary experience. I'm really glad I got it late. Better, better late than never. You know, <laughs> better the, late than never. <laughs> you know, the, the experience being the room for. And, and, and the other thing is, is that like I used to never used to dance because I always used to think I, well, I, I danced really badly. But one night I was just looked around, said, "Well, so no, no, no one dances very well. No one it doesn't cares. matter. It doesn't matter. It's the act. It's the act of being in that room, in that communion, and it really is a communion, you know. And hearing a really, really good DJ just take you higher and higher and higher and higher. Um, mm. Yeah. Well, I'm a total introvert, and I think that's why I've always been comfortable in clubs because you can just go into the crowd and disappear. Yeah. You know. It's not yeah. about you. It's about yeah. being part of something bigger than you. And I've always Absolutely. loved that about clubs. Yeah. That is the point, isn't it, really? I mean, it's, it's whereas, like, rock culture is so predicated on the idea of staring up at these gods on a stage, this is, this is in, the complete inversion of that and the freedom of that and the, and the sort of democratic joy of it, really. Well, that's when it started to shift for me. I remember in 97 going up to Gatecrasher with Judge Jules and sort of coming out to see him start his set. And he came on and all the lights came on and everyone turned towards the stage to watch him. And I was like, oh... This oh. isn't my kind of club at all, you know. And <laughs> not not de- not denigrating Gatecrusher at all, but it really did feel like you were going to watch an act, not to be. And in in clubs I was used to, you were the act. You know, the audience were the stars, not the DJ. No, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. and that's that's reached its kind of peak in America with the whole EDM movement and the ultra superstar DJ, where they're basically like stadium rock acts for mm. electronic dance music. Which is just depressing. I mean, you know, I love it when I love seeing a good. I mean, one of my favorite DJs is uh, DJ Cosmo, Colleen Murphy, who was David Mancuso's representative on Earth, who was one of our guests on the podcast a few months back. And she's just sensational. She but was you don't great. sit there watching her, you just dance to the fabulous tunes she's playing, you know. 
But, exactly you know, yes, you can, you can appreciate the quality of a good DJ. What's very interesting about your book, and actually Terry Farley talks about this in the interview, is how late people started mixing records in this country. The idea of actually mm. creating a seamless mix was a, very, was a recent late 80s phenomenon, wasn't it? People simply didn't do that before. Very they much played so, yeah. records. That was fascinating. I had no idea. I sort of assumed that had been going on all the time, but no, no. There, were, there were, you know, sort of scratchy sounds of needles being taken up, and, <laughs> and you know, in the soul weekenders, the DJs would get on the mic between yeah. tracks. You know, yeah. we'd have to listen to them talk before we could dance again. <laughs> Farley is very funny about George Power, the DJ Crackers, yeah. and, and he was a real on the mic man. You know, <laughs> it's 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 great. It's very quaint, yeah. Oh, yeah. isn't it? And he's scathing about his dress sense as well, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, I think one of these I find so fascinating, listening to the Farley audio and reading your book, is just the, the wonderful kind of sartorial snobbery and the sort of the codes that you, you know. I mean, I think I always found it very in- intimidating when I was in my 20s. I wasn't a natural clubber because I was just far too self-conscious and I always felt like I'm, I'm getting it wrong. I'm getting something wrong. Barney, you're looking at me and saying this. <laughs> it's like, I have never dressed up, but I always felt I belonged in clubs because I didn't feel I belonged anywhere else, really. You know, it was like I've never been stylish. I found the boys' own lot really intimidating until I got to know them because I right. thought they would go, oh, you've got the wrong shoes on, you can't come in sort of thing. <laughs> Farley is actually Farley's very fussy about that, and he talks about his own snobbery about the way other people are dressed and so on and so forth. No doubt about it. But, you know, in a way, that's... I just don't want to say a class thing, but I mean, probably one of the reasons why I didn't get into clubbing back in the day is that it's a substantially working class thing which comes out of the roots of things like mods and all of those sorts of things where the notion of how you dress was important in a, in a way that it wasn't, let's say, let's say if Barney and I could characterize ourselves as like end, fag end of the hippie period sort of people where, you know, <laughs> but I mean, I remember when I was at school, the skinheads were just evolving out of the mods in 1968-69. And, and it was very particular, you know, they, they had to wear this jacket, these shoes, this sort of stuff. And that mod culture extended right through dance culture, I think. It's a particular sort of, sort of working class thing about appearance and about scenes and so on and so forth. And especially if you've come from somewhere like Slough where you've got kind of nothing else to do, I think it's, it's, very, it's, it's important. I think that's part I think that's of it. Right. I also stopped taking drugs in, when I was 24 years old. So when I'd go to clubs in the mid-'80s, I felt sort of crippled by self-consciousness in a way that maybe I wouldn't now. Maybe it's not too late. <laughs> <laughs> but I just found it un- unbearable, you know. I just I could not sort of lose the, the, the self-consciousness, you know. Maybe we should all go out and you should go <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's go to one of those illegal raves. <laughs> we'll, we'll drive up the M1 together. Now, look, uh, Cheryl, thank, you know, thank you so much for, for, for joining us to talk about this. It, it, it's uh, and and anyone who's listening, go out and buy Cheryl's fabulous book, Adventures in Wonderland. Do. Um, Cheryl, yeah. we do love a segue on the Rocks Back Pages podcast. So the best that we can do this week in moving into a brief discussion of Mr. Mike Skinner is to note that his track "Weak Become Heroes" on original part material is, I think, one of the most beautiful sort of elegies for the rave era. I don't know if you know that track, Cheryl. Do you know I it? I do. I mean, it's interesting. Mike's becoming, with my clients, because I now coach sort of creatives, yes. more and more, you know, his name's coming up again as an influence. And I'm so glad that people are kind of starting to acknowledge his part in things yeah, again. Yeah. Yes. I mean, Barney, when we were first starting Rock's Back Pages and we'd been lent off next to Dave Stewart's studio from Crouch End, and that album had just come out and we listened to it a lot. And... It, it shouldn't have been something I'd have loved. And I absolutely adored that album because it, it spoke of a London that I recognise. You know, it spoke of the sort of people that were around where I was. And there's something just delightful about him. I think he's just such an interesting guy. And his, there's a tenderness. It's weird to talk about music, which is sort of like sort of out of grime or proto-grime, you know. And yet there's a real tenderness to, to, to him and, and, and what he did. Really lovely. I, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, I mean, so you're you're a fan, are you, Cheryl? I am. Yeah, 
I thought original part material, I would say it's one of my favorite records, you know, one of my favorite albums, just period. I think it's extraordinary. And, you know, he's done lots of good things since then. There was a bit of a lull. I thought Computer Blues was pretty good. There's a new, like, mixtape album coming out this week, hence we're talking about him. And we've got three... We've actually got a, a clip of the audio interview with Mike Skinner from 2002. The album original part material has just come out, and Gavin Martin is talking to him. So, we'll, let, shall we just hear that little clip, Jasper? Let's. Original pirate material. You're listening to the streets. Lock down your aerial. Has it come to this? It's an honesty thing. You, you know, you don't think anyone really wants to know about. You know, what American rap is, is just just glamorised living in America. You know, so if you glamorise, well, not glamorise, but, you know, make exciting what your life, and that's just as good as Americans. Any Americans leading just as an exciting or boring life as, as anyone over here. Make yourself at home. We got diesel or some of that homegrown. Sit back in your throne, turn off your phone, because this is our zone. Videos, televisions, 64s, PlayStations, Web Henry with precision. Yeah, so we have that interview featured for free on the homepage this week. And it's just, it's lovely listening to him. And has it come to this? Has, has already, I think, been a hit at this point. And he just, he talks to, to, to Gavin about... Oh, just all kinds of interesting things. And we've also got a piece by Toby Manning from Jockey Slut, also at that time, March 2002. And then jumping forward to the second album, A Ground Don't Come For Free, April 2004, this is Ben Thompson talking to Mike Skinner for The Observer. He's just he's just really, really interesting. He's also, I mean, of course, he wasn't born in Birmingham, but but he grew up in Birmingham. You can still hear that. Brummy twang in in that <laughs> clip there. I mean, Cheryl, do you do you feel any like kinship just with him for that reason? Yeah, I mean, I I think one of the things about you know my home city is we're really good at mixing stuff up. You know, it feels quite natural to us. And I think you know he was another example of that as someone who was quite happy to mash genres and and also be a bit more vulnerable, as you say didn't feel that he had to sort of emulate the kind of maleness that was on offer from American rappers. And I think, again, in Birmingham, there's that just a bit of space to experiment, I think, that you don't necessarily get in London. Sure. Yeah. I mean, because on that first album, there's, there's that song, It's Too Late, which is, you know, it really is like a young man willing to sort of be a bit emotionally vulnerable and then dry your eyes on, I think it's on the, the second album, you know. I mean, they, these are pretty soppy soppy song for for a sort of you know what does he call it a rap project I think is his name for the street you know I I, he he caught my attention a little while later when he did this had this conversation with the philosopher John Gray which I just thought it was like wow you know from original pirate material to a conversation with with this guy about the book Straw Dogs he's just a really you know intellectually curious guy I, th- I did think Computer Blues was was really good. I think there are good things on the other albums. But, you know, he's still there. He's still interesting. He mentions Wu-Tang in that audio interview with Gavin. And I just wanted to sort of note en passant that I just watched the, the Wu-Tang documentary on Sky Documentaries. I don't know if you've seen that, Cheryl. No. Have you seen it? It's really good, actually. And obviously, you know, they, they were an influence to some degree on him. But I really recommend it. I think it debuted on American TV, like Showtime or HBO last year. But it's finally come here. It's in two parts, so it's two hours. If you get a chance to see it, it's great. Written it down. I mean, what, what a fascinating group of characters. And some of them are really charming. Some of them are just nuts. Remember our, method, our, <laughs> our encounter with them in San Francisco airport? Yes, I do. I will never forget that. It was, <laughs> it was such a thrill. This is the first time Mark and I ever went to America on Rocks Back Pages Business, and we were at the airport in San Francisco. And I suddenly remember I, I was aware that the RZA was, was sitting across from the sort of waiting lounge. And then I realized that they were like, they were sort of all there. 
And I think you struck up a conversation with you, God. Yeah, well, he (laughs) claimed to have met me. He said, I know you. I don't think so. I think that's unlikely, Mr. I think that's highly unlikely. Yeah, I know, man, I know you. I know you. (laughs) It was very funny. Anyway, that was a tangent. That was a tangent. I think it's called Of Mikes and Men. The thing I like about The Streets and Mike Skinner is what he alludes to and talks about in that interview clip is about how realness isn't realness, it's just being genuine and and it it varies from context to context. And I think a lot of people don't get that when, you know, British rappers who hear American rap and go, well, I've got to do the English version of that. That's not that's not the case. It's that you've got to do the thing that's relevant to your own context, yes, and then it, then it'll make sense and it'll be authentic. But other than that, it, it cannot be. And I think that's one of the things that always shines through with with his stuff is that it is just it's just what he thinks and it's genuine. Mm. Yeah, and he you know he collaborates with interesting people. He's, there's at least one track on this new mixtape album that he's done with Tame Impala, who we've talked a little bit about on the podcast, and that's already uh, that's been on Spotify for two or three weeks. But the the album, which has a long name that I can't, I can't remember now, is out this week. So that's that's the street. Now let's get to the nitty gritty. Tune reminds me of my first D. Like unique, still 16 and feeling horny. Point to the sky, feel free. See a people all equal, smiles in front and behind me. Swim in the deep blue sea, cornfields sway lazily. All smiles, all easy. Where you from, what's your on and what's your story? This is when we talk, Mark, about new new pieces in the library. And we always say, Cheryl, please just stick around and jump in if the mood takes you, if you feel like you want to say something about any of the acts that Mark and Jasper are going to mention. Just, just pitch in. Well, first piece is Hugh Nolan for Disco Music Echo, 24th of June, 1967. And he goes down to UFO, UFO, the, the hippest hippie club in London. It's basically a brief report. And he says, what other clubs give constant light shows, far-out movies, ranging from avant-garde American to vintage Bela Lugosi horror? Avant-garde jazz groups, the latest sounds in pop, stray chicks freaking out having their dresses cut off, and often <laughs> the original Susie Cream Cheese as well. <laughs> I talk about having your clothes See, taken Cheryl, off. It was all going on long before they were trying to take your jacket off. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. I mean, because Mick Farron, who, the late Mick Farron, is one of our writers, was the doorman at UFO back then. Moving forward to 1969, Los Angeles Times, George Harrison, interviewed by Richard York. And so it's really interesting. Um, first of all, he, he, he's asked about why the Beatles have stopped playing live. And he says, you know, we performed the whole time. And probably, in my opinion, anyway, we reached our peak in Hamburg. So he reckons they were at their best as a live band when they were playing in Hamburg before they were even making records. And he says, when we came back to England after the last Hamburg gig, we were regarded as a sort of new thing. But all we really were was the past brought back. It's funny when you think about it. And now then he says, just bring up to the current day. Just in a way, Revolution Number 9 was all right, even if it wasn't particularly a Beatles sort of thing. <laughs> Say that again. And sometimes I feel like a spy just pretending to be a Beatle when there's a much greater job to be done in the world. It's, it's, it's a very good interview. I mean, George Harrison was, you know, is a, was an articulate and quite interesting man. My favourite Beatle. I was just your favourite Beatle. Always been my favourite Beatle. <laughs> Cheryl, do you have a favourite Beatle? My cousins made me choose between the Beatles and the Stones very early on. I was about oh. six. <laughs> That's a bit early to be making that choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they had no one else to fight with, um, so it was like I had to choose, and I, I chose the Stones actually. And um... yeah, well, me too. I think Mark and I would probably say the well, same. Well, no, I, I, I chose the Beatles until I think it was. February or May 1968, and the Stones came on top of the Pops as a promo video with face paint on doing Jumpin' Jack Flash. And then I just moved to the other side. It was that that single thing. I choose the Beatles. Sorry, chaps. That's all right. Well, I once interviewed Yoko Ono, and she does this thing when you go into a house where she leaves you in the room with the white piano. And she came back, and I was in the hall looking at her paintings, and she was like, but the piano. And I was like... (laughs) I really have come to interview you. And she was. Yeah. She just looked at me and went, really? You know, she couldn't yeah. believe that I wasn't really sort of there to look at the piano and touch sort of places where. But I've always been far more interested in her work than his, actually. Yes. Um, yes. But then, I, you know, I'm that generation where the Beatles really didn't mean that much. You know, T-Rex was my first 
great love in music after the mm. basic rollers, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, because you, 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 you and Caroline well, we can't go in. Yeah. We'll have to have you, another t- have you on another time talk about the rollers. <laughs> OK, 1973. This is Lillian Roxon for the New York Sunday News interviewing on the phone Al Green. And Al Green kind of totally seduces her on the phone. You know, she just, just falls in love with him. And he, he, he's, he's great. Darling, there are no tricks to life, no special formula. I'm not something you pick up and wind tight. You know, I'm hooked on entertainment. I look in the mirror as I talk to you and I see the face of a hooked man. It's a really good interview. I mean, I, you know, we just got the late Lillian Roxon on board, thanks to her niece. I'm finding her writing a revelation. She's just such, such a good writer. David Toop interviews Buck Owens for The Times in 89. He's talking about how much he hated the way country music had gone. I was so sick of what music had turned into. I tried to compromise, and to be quite blunt, it made me gag. <laughs> I love that. Toop, of course, was, was you would have known, I imagine, through the face, Cheryl. But you oh, wouldn't no, have had I knew him, him before then. My, before Steve then. Beresford was my flatmate, so David oh, was, was he? all the time. When I was at uh, university, I lived in a flat with Steve Beresford. So, oh, wow. you know, I'd oh. known David since I was, like, 19. Well, of course, you did this. You did the sign seal <laughs> delivered with with Sue Stewart. Exactly who was that. Part of the whole collusion gang. Did you did you write for collusion? Yeah, you did, yeah. didn't you? That's right. That's right. My basis yes. Rollers piece was originally the one I've been trying every five years since. Was originally no. in collusion. Yeah, no, we, 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 had we had David as a guest on the podcast, and he was just a fabulous guest. I mean, you know, I've met him a couple of times because I'm part of the sort of South East London improvised music scene and, you know, one bumps into... And he's such a, he's such a good man. You know, we're, we're, we're real fans of David. He introduced me to so much music. I bet. Well, the other thing is that he's so broad-minded. You know, I mean, when, when we asked him what do you like listening to, he said, I like listening to 70s soul. <laughs> Next piece... And it's actually a reader's letter. The reader concerned me Neil Kulkarni under a, a pseudonym to berate the Melody Maker. And this got him his gig writing for Melody Maker. This letter was so good that Kathy Unsworth basically said, we've got to hire this man. You know? And, hire um, this Neil, Great. Yeah. Neil, Neil, Neil's talking about how they treat black music really poorly in, on the Melody Maker in, 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 in the early 90s. He says, on the one hand, only whites are allowed any opacity of language, the beauty of words themselves. Blacks can only use words in a way that renders them transparent to their simple or polemical meaning. So the great pop poets are Buckley, Parsons, Drake, Chilton, not Green, Hayes, Mayfield, Robinson, Whitfield. You can talk about the poetry of your Mark Kozaleks or Kristen Hirsch's, but not your ice teas or gurus. Blacks aren't allowed to have the same hang-ups, the same depth of alienation, loneliness and feelings as white. Fantastic letter. Basically, Neil got... Got a gig at the Melody Maker as a consequence. Last piece is on, again, another recent addition to our writing team, Chris, the great Chris Heath. Did a huge piece on the Spice Girls to Rolling Stone in 1997. And it's, it's just great. I love Chris's writing. He's very funny. He can write these big, big reports. Let me see. Uh, Jerry says, I think anybody who has a negative or positive view on us, that's fine. That's freedom of speech. That's what creates democracy. And Victoria, conversely, posh spice, says, my mum always said to me, when you're older, men will take advantage of you. And they just don't. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Um, It's great. It's a really great. It speaks of like 8,000 worder. It's really worth reading. That's my lot. Jasper. I'll just mention a couple of things since we're nearly out of time. First of which, mostly because it's just very funny, the aforementioned Ian Penman absolutely tearing to shreds a couple of tribute albums that were released in 2000. He was asked to review for The Wire. A tribute album to Tim Buckley and a tribute to the songs of Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. Brilliant, because Buckley just got a name check in, the, in that called Carney letter, didn't he? Yeah. Great segue. We love a good segue on the Rock Track Pages podcast. But it's just a very funny piece because is there any point in anyone trying to recast the lessitude in a space sale of Tim Buckley? 
As a singer, Buckley belongs to the Eternals, so aren't these little indie people just setting both themselves and us, not that anyone buys these tribute things, up for inevitable disappointment? A couple of them, he says, are all right. The rest is utterly negligible, a hinterland of unmysterious muso-indie phantoms. <laughs> the compilation shows only how musically well-read and poetically blue-vamped Buckley was and how rational and empty most of today's comparable musicians are. Their tunings, line-readings, productions here, all as flat and flavourless as the cheap beer they likely exist on. <laughs> and, but what's worth pointing out, we were also posting this week a live review of Tim Buckley in San Francisco in 1968 by Philip Elwood, the San Francisco Examiner. So... You've got Buckley at either end. I suspect, I have a feeling that that Buckley tribute album was essentially the brainchild of, of either Herb Cohen, Tim's notorious manager, or Herb Cohen's son. And they did the same with Tom Waits. So they basically, because they owned the publishing in a lot of Buckley's songs, they, they got all these artists to cover and hoped just to make some quick money out of, out of Buckley fans. And that, yeah, this is... It's pretty suspect. Dear, oh dear. Well, if the Buckley tribute at least has a long EP's worth of semi-divine music, the Brian Wilson is totally bereft of point or value. <laughs> so, <laughs> Brian Wilson worse. so next up, I just wanted to mention for you, Mark, mm-hmm. and a fun interview with James Blood Ulmer uh-huh. from 2003. John Swenson talks to him for Offbeat magazine. John Swenson asked him if he's still in touch with Ornette Coleman and whether James Blood Ulmer is following what, what Ornette's doing. Ulmer goes... You mean the music? He's playing harmonics. That's what he's doing. <laughs> but every show is different, says, says John Swenson. No, every show is harmonic. Ornette Coleman shows is harmonics. He don't play no different shit. Coleman plays Coleman. He's like Miles Davis. Miles Davis don't care who the fuck played with him. He played Miles Davis. I'm the same way. I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> The last thing I want to mention is an interview with Public Service Broadcasting, who are sort of soundscape group recent. It's a funny interview. J. Wilgoose Esquire, which is obviously a pseudonym, and he's the founding member of of Public Service Broadcasting, says, I thought it was one of the worst, most pretentious ideas I'd ever had, which he must have had a lot of, given that he called himself J. Wilgoose Esquire. But actually, I rather like Public Service Broadcasting. I saw the prom that they did last year, and it was great. They had a sort of replica Sputnik spacecraft that came up on stage because they were doing their their race for space album and it was a really fabulous live show so and i think i'll leave it there because we are out of time we are out of time can i just squeeze in at the very end here a funny live review of britney spears playing at during the pride festival in brighton two years ago and stephen dalton is unconvinced by her (laughs) By her sort of X-rated act. He says, after pole dancing through I'm a Slave for You, Spears pulled a beaming male reveler from the crowd for some light BDSM cosplay during Freak Show. The world's least convincing dominatrix. She's more <laughs> <laughs> she's more MS than SM. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I had to get that. No, that's good. That's <laughs> Sorry, <great>. Brittany. <laughs> so I think that brings us to the end of the podcast. It's been such a treat speaking with you, Cheryl. Thank you so much yeah, for really joining good fun. us. Thank you. Good. It's been brilliant. A final plug for Adventures in Wonderland, which is out this week as an ebook, ebook and print, and print. So you can get it for your Kindle, or you can buy. It has a fantastic new cover, which you just sent through yesterday, Cheryl. So please, please go and buy that. And Cheryl, we'll have you back on to talk about the basis you wrote us. <laughs> Maybe with Caroline Sullivan and um, <laughs> the ghost of Tam Payton. <laughs> <laughs> we added this audio interview with Tam Payton not long ago. Brilliant. Which, if you haven't heard on Rock's Back Pages, Cheryl, you must hear. It's, it's, it's very bizarre, isn't it? It's very, A very strange, strange old thing. Yeah. Anyway, so that's us done today. We will be back in two weeks with none other than Lloyd Grossman, not to talk about spaghetti sauces, but about his early days as, believe it or not, a rock critic in Boston in the late 60s. Boston in late 60s. (laughs) So join us. I know. Yeah, there you go. So (laughs) (laughs) anyway, thanks for joining us. And thank you again, Cheryl. Yeah, we're going to go up with Danny Rampling's 
acid house dance as described <laughs> by Terry Farley. It's a great one. See you next time. See you in a fortnight. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. The whole acid house dance is Danny Rankin. You know, that's his dance. You know, that is his dance. You know, waving his record while he's playing playing the record. You know, up until then, you know, DJs just used to put a record on. You know, so like, you know, DJs wouldn't. You know, a rare briefing didn't even wouldn't acknowledge the crowd, wouldn't smile at the crowd. You know, the crowd wouldn't smile at the DJ. You know, there was no there was no connection. You know, the DJ. Oh, you know, always oh, playing really good records, isn't he? Yeah. You know, you, know, you might have been sorry. Oh, I really like that. What was that record? Yeah, right. And that was it. Yeah. Suddenly, you know, the, the, you know, Danny's standing up and he's waving his record like that, shouting, and people shouting at him, and people hugging him, laying over him. You know, and it was just like, fucking hell. You know, and that was his dance, you know, and then suddenly it became the shun dance, and then the shun people would go to another place, and people would go, oh, it was all the shun dance, it's the shun dance. <laughs> and suddenly the shun dance became the spectrum dance, and suddenly, like, the whole of the fucking country, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And it's his. I'm, I'm sure he stole it from Ibiza. I'm sure, you know, that's how they... You know, some sort of gay bloke from Spain or something was dancing in Ibiza on the podium. I'm mm. sure it, that's where it was stolen from. Yeah. But, you know, there was a specific... I mean, that's... I, that's <coughs> for me, that's the... It came... That whole movement came pre-packaged completely. You know, you had the dance, which was so different. That was Terry Farley in conversation with Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton in 2005, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Cheryl Garrett. Find Adventures in Wonderland on Amazon and visit her website at CherylGarrett.com. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison-Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Uh, how much time have I got, Jasper? 30 um, seconds. We're, we're <laughs> 10 seconds. <laughs> Starting 10. <laughs> like.